This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. This is the week when we sashay off around the state to visit the Missouri Arts Council's featured September artists. We have two painters, a wearable art jeweler and a poet, and no time to lose. So here we go. There are few places left in the world where human detritus is not visible or polluting the natural environment. And even when it's not really visible, it's still there in smaller and smaller pieces, working its way back into us and other animals as microparticles. And our detrimental impact on the environment is one of those truths that are so pervasive that it just becomes part of the noise of the Anthropocene. So how do we get people to still pay attention. For Cape Girardeau-based artist Joshua Newth, he tells the message of our trashy existence through his art, juxtaposing a meticulously rendered work of an item of plastic garbage with an actual pile of plastic trash. Under his accomplished hand, his classically painted portraits stare impassively back at us, sporting accessories made of litter, hats and collars comprised of fast food drink cups or dead birds, a plastic bag beard or plastic water bottles twisted in their hair. The works are beautiful and in this recontextualization, the message that we are what we discard is clearly delivered. We are trashing our home. Joshua is the foundation's coordinator and an assistant professor in the Department of Art and Design at Southeast Missouri State and has exhibited nationally at multiple museums. When he's not teaching or painting, he volunteers at an animal shelter and goes off into the woods to talk to woodland creatures. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Joshua. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate that intro. It makes me sound way better than I am. And and if you're not busy, maybe you want to join me and be my PR person. (laughs) (laughs) You would be an easy person to PR because your work is fabulous and has such a strong message. So yeah, we'll we'll talk about that. So I have this image of you wandering through the woods and all the creatures being like, talk to the hand man, just come back and chat when you all have stopped screwing it up for the rest of us. Do you just wander around saying sorry to creatures? I wander around and think apologetically about all that we subject our environment to. But I kind of divorce myself from those thoughts when I am trying to be a part of the beauty of nature. And yet at the same time, I'm pulled back into it because, you know, I take these walks and I continually find these objects that are evidence of our consumption of natural resources. And so while I go out there for a peace of mind, I'm quickly and abruptly like smacked in the face with what we continually do to our surroundings. And at the same time, you know, we're subjecting nature, the environment to ourselves. And yet we still ignore this beauty that is all around us. So I find that I find that kind of juxtaposition 
the opposition of the two really fascinating. And that's what kind of drives me to to create the work that I do is just this love for nature and the environment, but also why do we fail to appreciate the beauty of nature by our continual consumption of natural resources and the pollution of our spaces? It's an addiction. I feel your pain. See, you were born in Toronto and raised in Detroit as the only creative child amongst six engineering-focused siblings. So while they were playing with their Meccano sets, you were thumbing through National Geographic magazines with your colored pencils to hand. Tell me about drawing as a child. Was it always from magazines or were you tramping through nature then with a sketchbook too? I'm one of seven kids and from a young age... My parents fostered this creativity that was in me. And so as a youngster, I would be taking as many art classes as possible in, in school. But as a, as a young person, I always knew I had this talent. And, you know, one of my early-ish memories um, from high school, I was in 11th grade, the beginning of 11th grade, and I just got my driver's license. And, and mom and dad, they, they asked if I wanted to take oil painting lessons. And I said, sure. And so as a person who could just drive for the first time, I drove myself to these oil painting lessons every Thursday evening. And I started making, I was copying images from National Geographic. I was working with probably, I don't know, six, eight, 10 older women, probably in their 60s or 70s, the most gregarious, fun-loving group of women that anyone could ever hope to hang out with on a Thursday evening. And they were also so supportive. I knew nothing about painting, especially with oils, but they would walk me through things and kind of, you know, help me along the way, teach me how to work with oil paints and and really push me forward in terms of, of validating the fact that I was interested in something that no one else had any idea how to do. You know, I, w- I didn't learn how to paint in, in high school. I had colored pencils and some paper, and I was kind of in the back of the art room, and I was told, you know, go make something, go do something for 42 minutes out of the, out of the day. And so having this outlet where I could paint for, you know, three hours a night and feel almost like I am an individual separate from everyone else just making art it was kind of one of those moments where I, I started to appreciate the power of art to make me happy. Mm. Well, your oils, your oil on canvas series, I mean, you clearly have put the 10,000 hours in to become a great oil painter. Your oil on canvas litter series is so compelling. There is an almost Kahindi Wiley quality to the positioning of each person against a colorful background, mm. each one just staring out at and directly at the viewer, wearing McDonald's and Burger King cups or, like I say, draping plastic bags from their ears. It's such an interesting juxtaposition of beauty, the beauty of fine painting and the ugliness of the story behind it. Tell me the origin story for this series. Oh, <laughs> The origin story, um, I guess, you know, it kind of started with a friend of mine who is in the painting Consumption, which is my friend Chris, who in lieu of a beard has a Walmart bag wrapped around his ears and extends down. There was a day I was exiting my apartment and neighbors had had a bunch of people over and there was just litter everywhere. And I didn't know what to do. So I picked it all up and I put it in this Walmart bag and I just threw it in the car and I drove to work. You know, and I was sitting in my office 
And my friend Chris came through um, and we were talking a little bit and I asked him, I was like, I am looking for a subject matter. I wanted to start painting the figure again because I've been doing a lot of drawing up until that point. I wanted to start painting the figure again. And I asked him if he would like to pose for me. And he said, sure. And I didn't know what I was going to do yet. But he came, you know, a couple days or a week later and we set him up in this space. And I told him, I said, I, w- I want you to wear this Walmart bag as a beard. And credit to him, he said, absolutely, yes, I'm, I'm on it, no problem, right? Loved it. And so I took a couple photographs of it just for fun. And I was looking at those a little bit later and starting to think about what I wanted to do and my interest in nature and the fact that I'm outside all the time and I continually see litter, garbage, detritus. And so it was at that moment that I kind of thought, well, you know, I took this fun picture let me just try and paint this and see what happens. Um, and that's kind of the genesis of it, you know? And, and I, like I tell my students a lot, make the art first. You can extrapolate and figure out why you made that art later, and that can lead you in an in a investigative direction. And that's what kind of happened to me. You know, I, I took this photograph that I was interested in, I painted it, and that's what kind of led me down this down this path. And And like you said, you made reference to Kehinde Wiley. I mean, definitely an influence, but even more so Amy Sherrill and the work that she does, um, the work of Luke Timons. All of these people kind of feed into my influences in terms of how I address the subject matter. And I think when I look at the work of Kehinde Wiley or Amy Sherrill, you know, they're using these contemporary figures, these people, and they're giving them these moments where they can be proud. They can be who they are. And so I've kind of jumped on that. You know, I think that's fantastic and I love their work. And so I work with community members here and I ask them if they want to be a part of one of my paintings. And then we sit down and we I bring a bunch of litter in and we talk about how we can incorporate this litter into it, you know, and never once have they asked me if I have washed the litter or never once have they criticized any of my placement. You know, they're always 100% open to the cups on the head, the bags on the on the face, you know, something in the hair. They're always so gracious in their participation that it's fantastic. And, and you know, what I really want to do is create this this moment of access, right? We look at the the figure. We see the figure and that's a way for us to relate to something. So if I can create a portrait that is relatable because it's a figure, it has a nose, eyes, a mouth. If I can create this relatable image, I feel like it's a pathway in to me presenting something that is a little bit more difficult as a subject matter. And that's and that's why I use the figures because they're a platform for me to say, hey, look, we cause all these problems, but there are some of these that are supremely fixable. Litter is one of them. And that's just a starting point for thinking about the consumption of our natural resources. Aside from the figures, and this is maybe an older series, and I don't know if if it's still something you're working on, but I want to ask you about the dead bird works. They have Mm. such an elegy to them. And you describe them as possessing a romance. So what intrigues you about dead birds? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we we all, as, as artists, a lot of us get these kind of, um, how do I put this? We're known for something, right? <laughs> and so when I moved down to Cape Girardeau in 2015, 2016, something like that, I was doing these portraits 
of dead birds, these really detailed and intimate drawings of dead birds. And I quickly became that person. And so <laughs> I would get these random text messages of images of dead birds. And it was way too macabre. <laughs> I, you know, I had to just like delete them after a while. But but to answer your question, you know, in 2014, 15, I was walking on a beach in San Diego and I was just kind of patrolling it, looking at these immense pieces of seaweed. And I came across this dead seagull. And you know, I was really intrigued by it. I took a bunch of photographs of it. You know, a couple, two, three months went by. I'm revisiting photographs, and I can't get this out of my head. I start doing drawings of it, and I can't figure out what it is that I really am intrigued by. So I did a, a full life-size drawing of it on this really large piece of white paper. And then one day, I'm reading a poem by Wisława Chamborska, a Polish poet. And she talks about nature. And she talks about this dead beetle on a path and how we walk right by it and we don't pay it any attention. Mm. And so in that moment, reading this poem, I thought, it's the unmourned. It's the beauty of something that we ignore that I'm intrigued by, that I'm interested in. So when I was creating these images of dead birds... I'm not interested in giving you the death of the creature. I'm interested in reminding you of the beauty of their flight, the diversity of their calls, right? Their ever-present nature. So I'm not interested in in the death of these creatures. I want to remind everyone that, you know, these are beautiful and amazing harbingers of life. And that is clearly the elegy that I feel in those works. So having been known as the dead bird guy, and now you're the portraits of litter guy, what what are you working on next? What's coming up? You know, I'm still working on this series uh, of, of portraits using litter, but I'm really interested now in pushing the background a little bit more. You know, I just kind of stumbled upon just a couple of uh, months ago, I stumbled upon a West African artist from Burkina Faso um, by the name of Sori Sanli. And in the 70s, he did these fantastic photographic portraits in black and white of these kind of uber hip community members. And they were standing in front of these very flat, almost set design like pieces of fabric where it was like a painted scene of the city or an airplane or a marketplace. And I love the two-dimensional versus three-dimensional juxtaposition between those two. And I think that's what I want to kind of explore. I want to use the background as a support for the foreground. I want my background to add to the message and see if I can't create just a support environment for, for the figures that reinforces the nature of what we do to our environment. Well, hopefully coming to a gallery near us soon to see the works of Joshua Newth that explore our relationship with nature and the ubiquity of our detritus. Check out his website at jnewthimages.weebly.com. And Joshua, thank you so much for sharing your art with us today. I love it. And for making time to chat. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. The healing power of art is a given, whether that is making art on a communal basis to discuss and illuminate troubling societal issues, or making art alone to work through our own personal problems and find catharsis. Art allows both maker and viewer to find clarity and hope. 
And that is certainly true for Kansas City jeweler and designer of wearable art, Clarissa Knighton, who found a way to navigate clinical depression and bulimia through her own self-expression and a way to leave corporate America and forge her own path as an entrepreneurial designer. In 2017, she founded Rissa's Artistic Design and in the five years since then has designed jewellery for fashion runways, been a Kansas City Fashion Week featured artist, has twice won first place for jewellery at the Mid-America Winter Art Fair, created a sculpture for the Kansas City Museum and has had a residency at Kansas City's Charlotte Street Foundation with the African American Artist Collective. The first sale of her work took place in an elevator, and today she creates over 1,000 works per year. Clarissa spent her first two years of school in the Philippines, where her father was a chief master sergeant in the Air Force, and where her parents had bespoke Barbie doll furniture made for her, which she says she boldly repainted and still owns today. She also loves to work in a sense of chaos with a bowl of pork crackling nearby. And one of her goals is to design wearable art for Broadway shows. Clarissa Knighton, it is lovely to welcome you to Speaking of the Arts. Thank you for having me here today. I think we should start with the bold repainting of the Barbie doll furniture. How bold are we talking? <laughs> it is. It went from being white in the... Um, the fabric on all of the furniture was black and white to bright candy apple red spray paint. <laughs> well, your parents kind of horrified that they'd had this beautiful furniture <laughs> made for you and then you just repainted it all. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, just a little bit, just a little bit. And I've often, I often look at it and think, you know, you should spend some time and put it back to its natural state. But that bright red just, it makes me happy and Again, it's those lovely memories that we have as children. I love that your first sale was in an elevator. So tell us that story. So I actually started designing jewelry in 2007. And it was 2017 that I became a full-time jewelry designer. But I was wearing this piece of jewelry and a gentleman on the elevator with me says, that's beautiful. And I said, thank you. And I said, I made it. And he said, I would love to buy that. I'm in the doghouse with my wife. <laughs> and I said, sure. So there you have it. So I, a, a lot of people with their first works, they um, still own them. But I had no idea that my career would take off to this path and to this level. So I don't own any of my first pieces. Did that moment change you that you thought oh my goodness, it isn't only me that likes my work, other people like it too. Like, how did that change you as an artist? Well, it did change me because, again, I was creating for therapy for me. And to have someone express an interest, I was really shocked by that. And it made me feel like there's a potential. And and as I began to sell more and more work, I could see myself retiring from corporate America and doing creating jewelry full-time for others. So tell us a little bit about that. You spent 19 years working in corporate America until yes. Monday, August the 14th, 2017, when your world changed. Tell yes. us what happened that day. So that particular day, I had already been led previously to step away from corporate America. But 
as I call it, you have the golden handcuffs, you have great benefits. And, and I just didn't want to leave that. But that Friday, I looked to see if there was another position. And there was another position. And I contacted one of the VPs from another department, asked him about that position. He said it was available. And I was going to apply over the weekend because I had access to my computer, to my system, and I didn't apply. Well, we had a mandatory team meeting that Monday morning. And when we walked in that Monday morning, it was as if to say, this is, this is it. And we did, we sat there and then eight of us were ushered off into a different room. And at that time read by script of our jobs had been outsourced. And I sat there in awe and shock. But then I also thought, you know what? God has always taken care of you. So this is going to be no different. This is time for you to go out on your own with your jewelry full time. And I never looked back. You are very open about your own clinical depression and bulimia and how art has been a therapy to help you move through that. But then to suddenly lose your job, I mean, there's so much stress that goes with that, not least being the financial stress. How am I going to pay my mortgage or pay my rent? Talk me through the emotions of that time and that leap of artistic self-belief that you took to set up as a full-time designer. Had you already started selling jewelry by that point? So I had been selling jewelry for a number of years. And again, it was a craft show here, a event here and there. It wasn't anything that was consistent. And for me, that particular day, I knew I had changed because I never cried. And when you are a woman and you're emotional and even dealing with uh, mental, mental illnesses, mental setbacks, quiet spaces, you express yourself through your tears a lot of time. And I never cried. And I'm like, what is this? Why aren't you crying? You just lost your job. You're single. You have a mortgage. You have a car payment. What are you going to do? And it was just like a light bulb just switched and says, okay, you're going to do your jewelry full time. You're going to throw yourself in and say, this is what I would like to do, um, what it looks like. Now, on that flip side, I do have a client, um, Nicole Price, Dr. Nicole Price, that I called her and said, I've lost my job. And and at that, that particular day, I did go to her house, but I wasn't crying over losing my job. I was crying over, I don't want to be homeless. That was the, my, my angst of being a full-time entrepreneur was, I don't want to be homeless. And she said to me, Clarissa, you have family, right? I said, yes. She said, do you have parents and children and close friends? I said, yes. She said, do you have me? I said, yes. She said, you won't be homeless. Step out there and do it. And I'm very fortunate, a very fortunate artist, and I don't take it for granted. I am fortunate because I haven't lost my house. I haven't missed a house payment. And the depression during that time, I didn't even think about depression of losing a job or um, going back to my bulimic habits. 
it was, I don't want to be houseless. Right. So I'll do everything I can. And I did. You did. And it's been an amazing (laughs) five years. I mean, you've achieved so much in that time. Talk to me a little bit because we're on radio. So people, you know, people can't see things. But give us your elevator pitch for what your work, describe your work to us. What does it look like? So Rissa's artistic design is wearable art. When you don't want to talk, I tell clients, don't wear my work because my work will draw others to you. It will make you have a dialogue with someone. And if you're in a space, place that you are an introvert or you are quiet and you want others to come to you to talk, wear my work. My work is, is very sculptural. It is conversation starters. It is, there's no way that you can wear a piece of my work and not have someone compliment you. It is very bold. It is, like you say, it's very sculptural. And I, and I believe that your dream job as a child was you wanted to be an architect. And I wonder how much that sense of architecture fits into your design, your sculptural components of your design. Do, do you see that influence in your work? I do see that now in my work. When I first started, I did not see it. I just created. And then now it is, it's not with intentionality, but it's who I am supposed to be. Mm. Uh, for instance, my girlfriend, Sherry Whetstone, gave me some tree branches and she said, do something with this. And I, I looked at it and I'm like, okay. So I did a couple things and she said, oh, no, that's not it. That's not it. So I did something else and she said, no, that's not it either. And then I said, I'll show you. So I did a piece for the West 18th Street Fashion Show and that is where the executive director of the Kansas City Museum saw that piece come down the runway and approached me about doing a ceiling piece for the new museum. And it was at that moment that I said, okay, Clarissa, you are a sculptural wearable art designer and the architecture piece in your mind is starting to come out. Do you feel yourself having, as a result of that commission for the Kansas City Museum, do you feel yourself pulled more towards sculpture or is is wearable art and jewelry really the core of who you are? Jewelry will always be, I shouldn't say always, but I feel at this point in time that jewelry will, will have that pull for me because it's um, it's just so easy. It comes natural. But my heart is leaning toward sculpture. And I'm a part of the African American Artists Collective, AAAC. And they, um, we had an exhibition called Testimony at the Nelson Atkins Museum for 10 months. And it was there that I really began to, and that was prior to the Kansas City Museum. I was doing those two in conjunction. But it was there that I saw myself in a new light as I was creating that piece of this is who you are. You're now starting to step into who you're supposed to be. Jewelry, wearable art is the stepping stone or the launching pad that you can always fall back on. But sculpture, I think, is going to take me in a new direction and I'm, op- I'm, op- I'm really open to that and that opportunity. 
So exciting to have all of this potential ahead of you. Talk a little bit about the components you use in your work. You have bike chain parts and slices of deer antler and buttons <laughs> and freshwater pearls and also the, a lot of coils. Tell us about the significance of coils in, in your work that feature in many of your pieces. So coils represent to me, and I didn't recognize this until years later, I love coils. I love taking the wire and spinning it around a tool, any tool that I can find to make a coil. And it's going to sound kind of different, but coils represent my intestines. To me, you have all of this inside of you. Your intestines are so long and you've got all this right here in your stomach and you, and you don't realize it. So it's like there's all of this going on. And um, what if I were to stretch it out? What if I were to um, do this things a little bit different within my own personal life? But I like putting coils in my work because it's a representation of where I've come from. And um, I would never work while I was in a quiet space. And when I talk about depression, you'll hear me say a quiet space. Mm. But I would never work when I was in a quiet space. But I had a, an artist tell me in a workshop, work through that time because your work will be different. And when I began to work through those quiet moments, that's when I recognized that the coils were my bulimic mindset. And this is a new way for you to express yourself opposed to throwing up, express yourself through your work and allow that to come out. And so I take the tree branches and I love buttons and buttons didn't come around until a few years later doing a, uh, a show with my previous employer that the buttons came out. I didn't realize that how they would take off because I absolutely love them. And then bike chain, I ride bikes and a cyclist. I'm not a strong cyclist by any means, but I like to bike ride. And I thought, what do you have in your arsenal that would allow you to create something different and bring you financial stability. And so I started messing with bike chain and I opened it up and I put a stone in and I put it back together. I'm like, oh, this works. <laughs> this this will work. So I, I like to use, I've even used um, coffee bags. I've used coffee bags and I created a necklace out of coffee bags as a challenge because someone told me that I couldn't and I did. <laughs> I love that on the on the runway, at least, you are also designing for men. I mean, yes. certainly those kind of more, maybe more masculine components of a bike chain. I don't know. What do you find that the men are drawn to in your work? So when I create for men, it is, again, it is for the runway, typically. And I will use um, leather and bike chain together. And even the deer antler, I saw vision of slicing deer antler. Now, why I thought of sliced deer antler, I have no idea. <laughs> but I reached out and asked people for deer antler. They brought it to me. One of my colleagues' um, husband, he said yes to slicing it on a bandsaw. So he sliced some on a bandsaw. I sliced it on a bandsaw. Most people, when you look at this deer antler, you think it's agates, mm -hmm. but it's up until I tell you or you get close to it that you realize that is actual bone. 
So when I create for men, I try to try my best to use some masculine materials for them. But my client, my male clients, they like bold pieces just as well as women do. So that's been a very fortunate piece to my to my industry for me. Before we close, what are you working on now that you are particularly excited about? I'm excited about Community Health Center of Southeast Kansas. It's in Pittsburgh, Kansas, and I am creating for the first time a chandelier, a chandelier out of copper and pearls and gemstones, and it's going to be at least five feet tall. And again, I never thought that as a jewelry designer that I would lean into sculpture. So that's my recent project that I'm working on right now. Well, I can't wait to see photographs of that piece. You can find the jewelry of Clarissa Knighton on her website at rissasartisticdesign.com. And if you're at a fashion show in Kansas City, you may spot one of Clarissa's bespoke sculptural designs. Clarissa, thank you for being so open and vulnerable about your own mental health and for sharing a little bit about your story and your art with us this evening. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I say that everyone be good to yourself, be good to someone else. You never know when someone needs what you have to offer. I am definitely guilty of moving through art galleries too quickly. If I don't feel a connection with a particular work, I move on. But connection can take time just like it does with people. And I wonder how many artworks would have spoken to me if I had simply given them more time. One thing I can be certain of, however, is how much time each artist has put into a work that I might simply glance at. So don't I, don't we all owe a small gift of our time in return for the huge amount of time an artist has put into not just the work we see, but also the hours of preparation, the often years of study and their own emotional openness in creating a work for our eyes. For my guest, Augusta-based artist Terry Moore, her simple request is that viewers care when they look at her work, that they take the time to feel something, whether that's love or dislike. The important thing for Terry is that the viewer feels something about the work. Terry describes herself as an artist who draws, but says that drawing for her is not about what materials she uses, but rather the way that she uses them. Her drawing tools might be a paintbrush, a pencil or other media, which she applies to a variety of substrates before adding colour blocks that augment each work with an emotional filter. Terry makes work that reflects her surroundings and says that as a visual person, she knows who she is in the world because of pictures. Plus, during the warmer months, she travels all over the country as a bicycle tour guide. But for the next 15 minutes, we get her all to ourselves. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Terry. Well, thank you very much, Diana. It's my pleasure to be here. How has the summer of bicycle tours been? How far afield have you been this year? It has been really busy, mostly in the spring. I had a little bit of a break of about a month and a half. And during that time, I was busy working on a project, a presentation that the Four Rivers Arts Council 
was putting on. I'm the president of the Four Rivers Arts Council, so it was a big job. So although you travel all over the country with bike tours, from looking through the works on your website, which is terry.pb.online, in case anybody wants to follow along, it seems like the majority of your works reflect your own home and your own views and surroundings in Augusta and Missouri. And I'm sure you travel everywhere with a sketchbook, but tell me about the intention or maybe the catharsis that you put into your work. Well, you know, Diana, I think all of us have been more grounded towards our home in the last couple years because we've had no choice with the COVID pandemic. But I was no different than anyone else. I did a whole series of drawings inside my own home, just looking around and trying to find little vignettes that I found interesting, not because I wanted to maybe show that to other people, but because I felt like I could find interesting vignettes out of what most people consider ordinary views. So yes, most of my work, even though I travel a lot, is based around my own home and my own feelings about being in this place. So did that change during the pandemic? Prior to the pandemic, was it not quite as as local your body of work yeah I, I think that's that's probably fair to say although I do tend to focus on an area it doesn't have to be my own home I have spent that's how I found Augusta actually I was spending just a month here because I I found the town on the Katy Trail and fell in love with it and just stayed for a while to study it with my drawings did you grow up in Missouri I did not. I grew up in Illinois on a thousand acre grain farm. Ah, okay. And then I know you you went off to Paducah. And I'm interested in that, how you ended up in Paducah. You have degrees in art and art education, but you say it wasn't until you were a fully fledged grown up, you were divorced, your children were already raised and they'd moved out that you found your art confident self and moved to Paducah, Kentucky. Tell us a little bit about that journey, Terry, to becoming an artist and that that discovery of your art confidence. Yeah, well, I think when you're a parent and you're married, well, for myself, I can only speak for myself. A lot of my energy was put into those things. And I think I wasn't able to fully just focus on my work and and find a validity in doing the work until I moved to Paducah. And, and I was living with a bunch of other people who felt valid as artists without having to make excuses for being that. And I felt like maybe I always had to make excuses for making art because where I grew up, it was considered a hobby or a Uh, just a pastime that you did while you're not doing your other really important things. Why did you choose Paducah? I mean, I know it's a fantastic art-focused city, but why Paducah and not somewhere else? I I was actually living in Chicago at the time, and my daughter, who was going to school at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, heard an advertisement for Paducah. They were beginning what they called an artist relocation program, and so that sounded very enticing to me. So I went and visited and just decided that that was my space, that I'd found my people. <laughs> and I stayed in, and there was, the, the city did a great job creating an artist community. And I think at one point there were 35 of us from all over the country living in a 15 block area and developing it in our own way, which was very exciting. Right. Why did you leave? How come you decided that Paducah had had its time and you were going to move to Augusta, Missouri? Mostly because of the politics. Everything sounds 
utopian at the beginning. <laughs> and then as we got into it, there were underlying things that we didn't see at the beginning because we had our rose-colored glasses on. But um, it became, I'm not going to say political, but yes, political. And that wasn't what I signed up for. So myself and several others decided it was time to go. But I'm not going to say that Paducah still, it's still a wonderful place. And I think maybe it was because it was just my time to let the younger people take it over. I mentioned that all the time when I was living in Paducah that we were all in our 40s and 50s. And we were going to come to the end of our time there, and it had to morph into the next thing. And it was time for it to do that, and it was time for me to do that as well. I think always think that's a good decision that you know when it is time to go and, and hand it over to somebody else. That's a, a sign of somebody that is in touch with their creative self, I think. Well, thank you. Tell me a little bit about your work. They have a really beautiful delicacy of mark making to them and you appear and I'm, I'm guessing just from looking at your website that you appear to lay down the drawing in largely black and gray tones and then you have these beautiful color blocks that lay over the works as if as if we the viewer are looking at the works through a series of color filters so talk to me a little bit about your how you use color in your work and what your color choices signify well, the tree drawings that you see on the website that you mentioned earlier are kind of the first ones that I've really purposefully used the color like that. I like black and white, but I also know that I'm good at color. So actually, I lay down the color first in a very random way. Ah. I just start with a, a white, and then I start laying down the color, and then the, I develop the drawing on top of the color and the color has nothing to do really with the drawing on top of it, or I try not to. I try not to let the color decide for me the composition of the black and white. I try to let that be its own thing, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. The ones you see on the website, they mostly work or they <laughs> wouldn't be there. <laughs> so when you start with a blank canvas and you lay those colors down, do you know what's going to be the drawing on those colors or is that like a separate process for you? Oh, that's a totally separate process. I will I will lay down five different substrates with color and then go back and draw on them. I have no idea what the drawing is going to be often when I when I make the color blocks. Huh. I was trying to think how does this feel and it feels like you're looking through I have a little filter, uh -huh. and they add this emotion yes. to it. Thank you. That's, that's exactly <laughs> how it feels when I'm making them. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, you described me beautifully. I, I loved <laughs> listening to what you were saying earlier. So your works have a lovely, kind of an inherent narrative within them, and, yeah. and you write that narratives, your narratives are something that you want people to relate to and that you hear that they say that they relate to those narratives in personal and profound ways, but also that you don't want to direct your audience's view. You want each viewer to bring their own experiences to bear when looking at your work, as long as they have a reaction of some kind to the work. Yeah, and it's that right. ambivalence that bothers you. So talk a little bit more about that interplay between your own goal or your own vision with a work and, and the viewer's experience of your work? Well, I think the main thing is I don't want to treat my audience like they're idiots. I, I don't want to have to spell things out so, so clearly that they don't think for themselves. 
So because of that, a lot of times my work is is um, difficult for them to interpret or to interpret in the way that I would. But I love that. I love that when someone sees something, uh, oh, they'll say, that that piece is really dark. What was going on in your head? And in my head, I was making something happy. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't want to direct them so much that they don't have to think for themselves. I want them to be able to feel free to think for themselves and come up with their own interpretation of what I'm doing while I'm giving them hints, of course. So I guess, I guess that's how I approach it. And, and I think a lot of my work starts with a concept and then I explore that concept. So it's all themed for a while until I find something else. Tell to me about a particular work on your website. It's a triptych and it's titled City Trees, Number 7, COVID Times. And it has it's over three panels. It has a cemetery in the foreground and beyond which there are a trio of scapes which don't quite align. There's The left-hand panel has a Walgreens, a cell phone tower, a church steeple and a large tree then in the center panel, in the background beyond the cemetery, there's a telephone pole, some traffic lights and a, a large building. And on the right hand panel, there's a more gnarly tree with not really any visible cityscape beyond. But then on the edge of two of the panels, there is a car wing mirror reflecting something you can't see, reflecting cars that seem to be waiting at a stop sign. There's so much going on in this work. I just looked at it for ages. Would you tell us a little bit more about that work? Yeah, that one's actually hanging on my living room wall. <laughs> <laughs> that one I wanted to really talk about COVID with this series of city trees. These city trees I consider as being the watchers of our of our urbanness. They're there for a very long time. And a lot of things happen in terms of the human life around them during their lifetime. So that's where that idea started. So the first one was the, the tree, which I found in the cemetery here in Washington in the town where I live. So then that put to mind my ideas about COVID because it was all happening kind of at the same time. So all of those things that you mentioned, the Walgreens, the cell tower, the big building is a hospital, there is a cemetery, all of that stuff is COVID related. Those are places and things that became very important to us in a way that we couldn't anticipate before the pandemic. And then the rearview mirror or the side mirror on the car is kind of looking back or looking ahead, maybe looking at the unknown, what's coming next or what's coming behind us. So that one was really threaded with a lot of concepts. Was it cathartic to make that? I don't know that it was cathartic. It was just telling a story, I suppose, and wanting people to see that story. Most of your works do not contain people but somewhere I've seen some of the portraits you have done and you capture people beautifully I mean I recognized a couple of the people right you <laughs> said <laughs> why do people not figure more in your works oh actually I'm getting ready to start a whole new series of people I think it's just because I I just get something in my head and I explore it with my drawings until I'm tired of it and then I go on to the next thing I don't think that it's because I don't want to draw people or I don't I want to draw trees. It's just that that's where I am at that moment. All of those portraits happened because I did a show in Paducah and it was called The Portraits of Paducah. So I did 15 or 20 drawings and then then I when I moved away I came to Augusta and I was still in that mode of doing those 
those portraits. And so I drew a lot of people around here. And those are the ones that you're talking about. So tell me what's coming up for you. You're starting to work on a on a new body of work that may be more people focused. What are you seeing for this new body? Well, because I travel a lot and I still have three more weeks of tours. So that's a month full of work away from home. I take a small sketchbook with me and I've been drawing small, tiny little faces. I think they're three by four. And my goal is to make them all feel joy. So I want these faces all to be joyous. And I'm challenging myself not to look at any photo references. So these people are totally made up out of my own head, but they all have to have that feeling of joy on their face. And I want that to be transparent to the people who see them. So these are not people that you're encountering on your bicycle tours. These are just imaginary people. Yes. The last one, I think I called it tiny portrait of a person who doesn't exist, but should. I love that. Where can people see your work in person? Nowhere right now. But I am working on with two partners, opening an art center in in Western St. Charles County in a park called Klondike Park. We will have a gallery there of regional artists, including myself, and uh, rotating exhibitions. And we're going to try to start an artist-in-resident program. That's one of the things I did when I was in Paducah, helped start something called the Paducah Arts Alliance, and we became an international residency. So I want to develop that here at this place as well. Perfect. Well, you can see the work of artist Terry Moore on her website at terry, T-E-R-I dot P-B dot online. And if you rent a bicycle for a bike tour along the Katie Trail (laughs) in Augusta, it may well be Terry who guides you. Terry, thank you so much for sharing a little about your art journey this evening and taking time to chat. Diana, I really appreciate you talking to me. Thank you. I am... (laughs) generally challenged by poetry because it makes my brain work hard, which is something I seem increasingly averse to. That said, I love a beautifully constructed sentence where each word is like a musical note and the whole sentence together is evocative and transportive. And for sure, there is poetry that moves me with its densely rich, visually melodious and perfectly sculpted lines. But if you give me a book of poetry and a novel, I am going to head straight for the novel. I am a fan of the narrative. But narrative is only one way that we create meaning out of experience and the world around us. And poet Daniel Beagleson wants to explore other ways to push back against the logic of neatly constructed narratives. And he certainly does that in his brand new collection of poetry titled Of Being Neighbours, which was published just last week and of which one reviewer wrote, the sheer velocity of Daniel Beagleson's collection made me feel like I was riding a kayak on a tsunami. If you are a disciple of narrative, then Beagleson's book is a challenge as it asks the reader to hop between fragmented thoughts that can seem like non sequiturs. At other times, a work might move between a fully formed sentence and a fragmented one, or maybe just a word or a phrase. Beagleson writes that he is trying to capture the music of thought and that his poetry is about the associative leap, the surreal flight and the transformative metaphor. 
By day, Daniel Bugelson is the director of the Visiting Writers Series at Northwest Missouri State University and says that he thinks and hopes that becoming a father has made him not only a better person and teacher, but also a better poet. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Congratulations on the publishing of your first full collection of poems. I know from reading through the book that you have two children, Jack and June, because you dedicate Mm -hmm. the book to them. There are also lovely quotes from them peppered through your work. And I wonder, does this book feel like your third child? (laughs) Not quite, uh, but it does feel like an homage to them since they are everywhere in the book. They're all over it um, in both action and in, in language. I think some of my favorite lines in your works are the ones which involve quotes from or comments on your children, such as, it's a ridiculous argument, but my son stands his ground. Why can't he attach a balloon to a teacup and fly to New Jersey? Good point. (laughs) And in another poem, the line, my daughter says... You talk with your eyes off, which is such a brilliant line. I am going to have to borrow it. So thanks to June for that one. And I'm curious how you feel being a father has made you a better poet. Well, I think it's made me more attentive to the world around me. Some of the sort of smaller, more domestic moments in our lives, the sort of mundane moments in our lives. I think sometimes we're looking for the big epiphany or the sort of moment of astonishment, and we miss the astonishment in front of us. And I think in some ways, uh, having children has sort of made me more attuned to that as they, they speak in poetry, they think in poetry, they talk in poetry. And so becoming more in tune with that way of thinking that I think sometimes we lose as we get older has been helpful in some ways. So making me more childlike, I guess, or connecting me to my inner child. But I think also it's given me a greater sense of responsibility. I think I've always been sort of politically oriented or inclined, you know, engaged. But having children, it connects you to a kind of future that you are not immediately connected to us as a singular soul, I guess. Right. Talk to me about this idea that poetry is about the associative leap, the surreal flight, the transformative metaphor, and and how you see that as something that forges connection. Yeah, well, I think I think there's different ways of ordering experience. And when I'm moving through the world, I'm hearing, I'm seeing, but we have so many inputs nowadays, right? So I'm always hearing echoes. Uh, I'm listening to music. I'm listening to a podcast. I'm reading a book. Um, all of these things that sort of make me my many selves, right? Because we're all multiple. You know, they're all happening around us and they're swirling. And I think in a sense, like... The associative leap, um, the connection we make that may be very highly personal sometimes, but then also societal. And that brings these two things from distant spaces together or a different social context. Um, so I, I think metaphor implicitly or actually probably explicitly does that, right? It says one thing is something else and those two things are completely separate. So 
in a poem I'll, I'll read from a little while, you know, uh, a, a metaphor. I'm a bowl of cold plums. Right? <laughs> so the, <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a metaphor. You know, we don't often think of ourselves as cold plums, but now you're kind of encouraged and, and asked to think through what that means. But I, but I think that's a part of it. I, you know, we, we're often thinking connectively, but narrative forces a particular kind of connection that has to do with linearity, time. And um, I think we also kind of experience life outside of time. Talk to me a little bit about the the impetus for your new collection of poems about about being neighbours and how, as the quote you include with the first poem of the book suggests, history has made us all neighbours. And I wonder, has it made us all neighbours? Well, Yes and no. I mean, I think you know, that Martin Luther King has a you know an important line that history has sort of brought us all together, but it's up to us now to see what we do with that, right? So modernity, technology, all of those things have connected us in ways that we were not connected before, and that that trend, historical trend, has been ongoing, right? So, what do we do with that when we are now in contact with people of diverse ways of life um, from diverse backgrounds? backgrounds, you're kind of faced with a choice, right? An ethical choice. So we can either look to forge the bonds of community, or we can continue to kind of see ourselves as isolated, distinct, and, you know, disconnected. But this isn't like a new problem. It just looks new to us, right? I mean, this is the problem of, you know, the modernist poets are also engaging. This is a problem that you find if you look back into the Torah, right, or the Bible, right, where the term stranger is evoked over and over again. And what are our obligations to the stranger? So the book sort of, I think, is rooted in that kind of question. But I think one of the things that happened is that I had children right around the time of the 2016 election here in the United States. Mm. And I think for many people, that was just so sort of, there was an enormous disconnect out here looking around and thinking about, do I know my neighbors? Do my neighbors know me? So the book is rooted in these larger questions for sure. So you have within the collection 11 works that I guess are kind of the spiritual heart of the book and they revisit in different ways the idea of neighbours or neighbourhood or community and, and how we come together or, or don't. So I, I wondered if you might read one of those works. I think there's 11 in total, but I've chosen Neighbours number three because it's slightly shorter than the <laughs> others given our time limitation. So before you read it, give us a little insight into where you are taking us in Neighbours three. Yeah, so this is a, a poem that begins with an epigraph by Adrian Rich, uh, because in times like these, to have you listen at all, it's necessary to talk about trees, which is itself in conversation with a quote by Betrol Breck, what times are these in which a conversation about trees is almost a crime for undoing so we maintain our silence about so much wrongdoing? And my poem is mapping a kind of dialogue with those kinds of poets and, and thinkers and trying to figure out how to see ourselves through the sort of veil of language that we place in front of us. So this is kind of a poem that starts in sort of dailiness of cleaning up after a storm but then sort of veers in a variety of other different directions to try to figure out, you know, how we grapple with the destruction, not just on the individual level, but also 
on the larger social level. Would you like me to read it? I would. Okay, go ahead. Here we are. Neighbors 3 by Daniel Beagleson. Replace glass heart with scalpel. Words become a cudgel. Call for rain. Glisten. Close up. Magnify a leaf until the drunk brims with color. Place leaf with wind. Every June we lose limbs to straight line winds. Elm, maple, oak, ash, etc., etc. They come knocking at night. Redact redundancy. Extinguish the list. Insert space. Remove the catalog. Remove stack and mulch the dead wood. Map my internal geography. I am a bowl of cold plums. Would you have one? I'm a body of words in uproar and otherwise. Replace words with birds. Fill a tree. Take your pick. Redact free will. Replace map with mine. Relieve the workers. Every day we leave labors behind. Exchange our labors with neighbors. The dark soil laced with slender roots swells and subsides beneath us as the tide breathing who are you extinguish the implicit we are an answer which leads to another answer some of us are no longer breathing i am used to defending the singularity of our experiences but grow concerned about reducing the dead to their individuality redact redeem we linger longer in blue light we are not only what we say or do how much do you write for you to clear your own mind of questions that circle and thoughts that pop up? And how much do you feel like you write for an audience? And and in your head, who is that audience? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think the poems often kind of start with a, a place of dialogue. So I'm I'm dialoguing with myself, but I'm also dialoguing with other voices and other things in the world in a way to try to make sense of the world and um, my own place in it. And as I'm sort of doing that, I am trying to figure out, okay, like, how can I connect this to some sort of larger ethos? So I know that many of my poems are challenging, but they work on multiple levels. So um, like the neighbor's poems are challenging, but they're also musical. So they border on like kind of performance poetry. Well, Daniel Beagleson's first collection of poetry is out now and is titled Of Being Neighbours. You can read selected poetry works on Daniel's website at danielbeagleson.com. And Beagleson is spelled B-I-E-G-E-L-S-O-N, danielbeagleson.com. You can also order his book on the website, or I'm sure if you pop down to your friendly local bookstore, they would be able to order one for you. Daniel, thank you for challenging my brain. and for making time to chat this evening. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingoftheartstransistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests this evening, painter Joshua Newth, wearable art jeweller and sculptor Clarissa Knighton, artist Terry Moore and poet Daniel Beagleson. Thanks as always to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Bandcamp and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, 
thank you so much for listening. This has been Speaking of the Arts and my name is Diana Moxon. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri. Missouri.